Welcome to Brain Friends, where two newer nerds talk all things aphasia, language recovery, culture, and community. I am Dr. Detrina Celeste Gatson, a clinical speech language pathologist and neuroscientist. And I am Angie Cawthorn, stroke survivor and aphasia advocate. Welcome to our show. Welcome to Brain Friends. We want to thank all of our listeners for downloading the podcast. We appreciate everyone listening. So please tell a friend to tell a friend that we are here. And we are. Hey, Angie. Dr. Celeste, what is good with you today? How are you? I am blessed and highly favored as always. What is going on with you? Well, I am so excited because today we are doing Neuroplasticity 2 and we have a special guest. (laughs) So our special guest is Dr. Roy Hamilton. I actually met him because he invited me to the Black Aphasia call. Yes, the one that I met you. Wait a minute. So wait, I met you. He and... Stop. He brought you to the call and then I met you on the call and now we have our podcast and we're inviting him to our podcast that we all met on the call full circle okay come on (laughs) come on circle (laughs) all right well uh Dr. Roy uh introduce yourself Hi, Dr. Roy. Hi, thank you. Thank you. It is so wonderful to be here. Uh, it's it's so wonderful to close the circle. So my name is Roy Hamilton. I am a behavioral neurologist at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm a professor there in the departments of neurology, psychiatry, and physical medicine and rehabilitation. And I run a laboratory and a center that are devoted to the use of non-invasive brain stimulation. So that's magnetic and electrical stimulation of the brain, non-invasive. We don't open anybody up. Uh, And we use these tools to understand how the brain is structured or what parts of the brain are good for what by manipulating them with these magnets and electrodes. And then we also try to take those discoveries and insights and bring them into patient populations who have cognitive deficits on the basis of neurologic disease and the, the, to try to uh, remediate, to try and help those individuals use these technologies to, uh, to recover the abilities that they've lost. A lot of our focus, I would say most of the focus of our laboratory goes to persons living with aphasia, uh, either due to stroke or due to neurodegenerative disease. So that's what I do in my research life. Uh, Administratively, I'm also the vice chair for inclusion and diversity for the Department of Neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. I spent almost 10 years as one of the assistant deans for diversity inclusion in the medical school there. And uh, I am very interested and passionate about uh, the diversity in the neurology workforce and the workforce of individuals who are caring for patients with aphasia and other neurologic disorders, as well as equity when it comes to patients suffering from neurologic disease. So that's, that's a quick overview of my life. (laughs) That was not quick. That is (laughs) total mouthful. Talk about goals. Oh my goodness. Right. Uh, You're just out here making us look like we are not trying. (laughs) Like I'm just not doing my best. (laughs) 
I shared with Angie when we got started how I was nervous about um, today's episode because Dr. Roy is just so distinguished and doing all the things. And so we appreciate you for being here. And taking the time. So first of all, I don't I don't know what the two of you are talking about because I know for a fact you are both amazing. So <laughs> I don't know why you're treating me like this, but thank you. So if you say it, it must be true. Okay. It must let be the record show. Exactly. <laughs> well, let's get into an icebreaker. Um, because if we don't do an icebreaker, then the people <laughs> we will hear let about us know. It. We hear about it. People get uh antsy if we uh don't do the icebreaker so we'll pass it to our uh you want to pass it to our guest first yeah okay so the icebreaker today is i want you to name a high school memory that still makes you laugh okay all right well um i'm gonna warn you uh it makes me laugh i'm not (laughs) sure i'm not sure it's funny (laughs) <laughs> okay, but it makes me laugh, and I've kind of got like a kind of life lesson I kind of took from it. So I, oh, I, I you know, I'll, I'll still tell you the story. So um, let me back up. In high school, uh, I mean, who am I kidding? I still, I, I was, I was a really good kid. I mean, like straight laced kid that you know didn't drink, didn't smoke, went to school every day. Like that, that was me. It's still me. Uh, I, I had, I had one thing though. I did one thing because I was living in Southern California. I loved. I love to drive fast, right? Oh. Just, just a speed demon. Like my parents knew this. That's why when I was 16 and I was like, mom, dad, you got to get me a Mustang. They were like, no, you get a Chevy Cavalier. You get a 1987 <laughs> oh, wow. brown Chevy Cavalier. Like the kind of car you do not want to roll up to a date in. And, uh, so, but I still drove it fast. So yeah, you one did. day I'm on my, uh, yeah, the best it could do, you were on it. Yeah, I was on it, like <laughs> like pedal touching the floor. I'm coming around, and uh, I'm, uh, you know, my rationalization is that I'm late for school, right? But really, I'm just fit, trying to figure out reasons why I can drive seventy miles an hour on the street. And um, for those who are following the podcast, who live in Long Beach, I'm coming at to the intersection where Studebaker meets Los Coyotes Diagonal. It's a curve, <laughs> and and. And the and the car does this thing where two of the wheels come off. I'm driving like Dukes of Hazard style. Oh wow. All right. And I'm like, oh, oh, I see what's gonna happen now. I, I'm I'm about to die. And, <laughs> oh, and, I see what's happening and, here. And, and and the car fishtails and I like swim around and I I ram into a bus stop, like one of those bus big thick bus stop yeah. poles sever it completely from oh the ground my. keep going hit hit a fence to a jun- the local junior high that had two uh metal poles they wrap around my car like a c like 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 they like turn my car into a, a burrito of chain link fence and my car is like bent like a pretzel and this is this is pre airbags right? right just just me and just me and my seatbelt and uh i I am totally untouched. Like the car is total. The car is just a mess, right? Just I don't mangled. know what happens. Mangled. I don't know what happens for the next half hour because somebody called the police and somebody called my parents and you know AAA. I I don't remember any of that. But 
um, I do remember watching my, my classmates driving by to school and having to be like, hey, hey. <laughs> and, and, being scared, and I remember being scared of two things. First, um, that I was late to school because remember, straight laced. And then the second thing was uh, that my mom and dad were going to kill me, which, of course, was not true because they were too busy thanking God I was alive. Exactly. Right, right. At, least, at least at least my mom was my, my dad kind of felt a certain way and you know like it, it took him yeah, once he had adrenaline to, wore yeah yeah once the adrenaline like, yeah, about wore this, off yeah about this cavalier. yeah yeah, yeah and it didn't help it it took him like six years to fix the fence so then every time we're driving by my dad's like hey you remember that time i was like yeah i, I, I was there i yeah, remember i'm, I'm good so, dad. I, I remember <laughs> i'm good i'm good so every time i think of it i still i still laugh and i laugh for for a couple of reasons because I mean, that was my next part what what makes you laugh about <laughs> oh my god because I was stupid. Yeah. Right? I mean, okay. and if, if you if you don't laugh at yourself when you're being stupid, then, uh, you know, it hurts more when other people laugh at you for being stupid. Right. So you got You got to take the preemptive strategy. <laughs> the preemptive then, strike. And, yeah, right. Preemptive strike on stupidity. And then the, the second thing is I, I laugh not because it's funny. I laugh out of joy. It, I, I am. I am lucky to be alive. In Less, your brain. Right? I, right and and uh it uh, and completely untouched unscathed and i i think you know if that this event was clearly meant to kill me and and maybe if it didn't maybe that means i was meant to do something more worthwhile than you know just end up a, a smudge on a bus stop in in long beach wow. right and so uh you know i hope i've done that uh but it you know it's one of those stories that that just makes me smile and think about my life that wow. is awesome. That's a great story. That's a real good story. That is a good story. So you were uh, just some good old boys. Never, yeah, yeah, so, you were just Dukes of well, Hazzard. I, right? mean, I mean, not exactly Dukes of Hazzard on account of like, you know, it was I didn't have the general... Yeah, yeah, it was a Cavalier uh, that did not have the Confederate flag painted on it, which which, right? which is nice, but, which is also yeah, nice, which is nice, which is also <laughs> good, nice. Good but look, yes, yeah, good look, good look. But yeah, always yeah, yeah. forward thinking. I tell you what, forward, yeah. But yes, wow, yes, I I was a a demon on the road. Now, are so, you still? Uh, no, no, no. I'm a you know I'm a dad with two teenagers. I'm like that and. This guy, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we'll see. For the viewers, he was driving Miss Daisy. I mean, for the listeners, that that was the motion. He was, you know, driving Miss Daisy. Yes. Very slow. Slow driver now. Just, just, just don't cut me off. Don't cut. Go- <laughs> okay. Right. 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 But if somebody pulls up and gives up the 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 uh, vroom, vroom, you're like, you, you, right, right. You have this thing that can kind of click in. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's like fast and furious. <laughs> Angie, what about you? Do you have a high school memory that still makes you laugh? I don't have a I I do, but I have to tell my racist story now because we have Dr. Roy here. Okay. I have to tell my racist story. So prior to my strokes, I was a finance manager um at a large dealership. And uh I have uh Kia Optima. And I used to manage Kia before I went to this other dealership. That's not the point. The moral of the story is one of the, my coworkers was talking some smack and we got off pretty late. We're on 95 and I'm embarrassed to say how 
I don't even like to tell the story how fast I was going, right? On I-95 at like, (laughs) Dr. Celeste is like, lady, (laughs) why are you telling this story? (laughs) I'm I'm racing this kid. I have no business. He's like 19 with nothing to lose. I have a mortgage. I have problems if anything goes awry. (laughs) But we're racing. Okay. In a Kia. In a Kia. Kia. Yeah, I dropped it in sport and I smoked him like a pack of cools. And uh, two hands, two hands, I you know, but which made it safer, good. That's I guess. Safe. And <laughs> it's, it was a straightaway or ninety five at like a, maybe ten thirty, eleven o'clock at night because dealerships close late. Seat belt. <laughs> see, Doctor Roy gets it. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor Roy. You see, she's already beginning to berate me and think less of me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I um. I will, I may remember it next time I'm in the car with you, but definitely no judgment here. Well, I would never um, uh, do that again. It was definitely, <laughs> yeah. And uh, that Kia, you drop it in sport. Oh yeah, it's sporty. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's a good story. Thank you, doctor. Oh, what about what's your favorite? What's your what's your uh, funny story from high school, Doctor Celeste? So mine is I had a thing, and I might have shared this before about calling the news outlets if I felt like something was going wrong at my high school. No. So if I felt like something was going wrong at the high school, I would call the news, and I would then invite the news over to the house, and they would do interviews and things like that but I never told my mom because I thought it was like a I wanted to surprise her when she turned on the (laughs) six o'clock news and she saw me talking about whatever I felt like I needed to complain about in the high school so this one time I called the news um I don't know. I won't get into why I called, but I called the news because something happened at the high school that I didn't think was fair. And, you know, they came in and I was all excited and we sat down and we watched the news and believe it or not, mom was upset that I called the news and I had them in the house interviewing me while she wasn't home. And you are how old? My goodness. Uh, Why? Like, why was she upset? Right. Why, why is she not letting well, you be great? Why is she trying to see you? Unimaginable. <laughs> keeping you down. What's going on? Mom? Right. I was like 17. Yeah, like and, 16, and 17. What I need to know is, I mean, you don't have to get into specifics, but what what category of issues were you like, this is worth calling the news about? Like, I mean, were they at like, 16? You know, okay. 16. Okay. So I, I'll share the issue. So in my high school, we, so I grew up in the South. I grew up in Georgia and every black history month. So I had to be in the 11th grade. So I was probably almost 17. So I, um, we always had black history month gatherings and, you know, um, uh, what's it called? Like assemblies. And so, For some reason, they would allow all of the white students to come late that day, like they didn't have to attend the assembly, and they wouldn't get marked tardy. And this went on for like years. And then finally, I just said like, that wasn't fair, because we would then have to go and it was the only the Black History Assembly 
that that was okayed for that you can come late. And then it was just always this thing. They would hang out at Chick-fil-A and come in and, you know, it just, right. and then it just Greg, was the thing. Like we don't late. go to the black history assembly. And I just oh. didn't think it was right. So I called the news about it. And um, then they came to interview me. So that happened. And so then following a little later, but, I called. But what happened to the assembly? <laughs> well, <laughs> the assembly would go on. Did the did being on the news change it? Oh yeah. So then senior year they had to come. Okay. Yeah, senior year they had to come. But I got smart because when they did the follow-up interview for me to see if anything had changed or if the school had addressed it, I didn't invite them inside. I interviewed <laughs> them. I had them interview me on our porch. As if the inside the house was the issue, not your mother not knowing that you were. As if that makes it better, because now people know what your house looks like. Yeah, and then she said that. She was like, no, it's not about, you know, whether it's inside the house or outside the house. Like, you and, because then, of course, she got called into the principal's office because, you know, uh, they labeled it as troublemaking, which I disagree with that. I think I was being an advocate. And, you know, she was like, I want to support you, but you got to let me know. You can't just go say, rogue. let's turn on the news and you're sitting there with a big grin and you're the spokesperson for everything going on. Talking about surprise. Look what's on the six o'clock news. Right. You're supposed to be coming in with maybe a nice dinner. An A on a on a test. Surprise, uh, yeah. Bob, I did so much better than we thought. And you coming in on the evening news. And the second time she got mad, I said, Mom, I didn't invite them in. You said that I had to do it on the outside. So then I realized it was a thing of she wanted to know. And also us talk through things first before I just immediately go calling Rude. the news because I felt like something was wrong. <laughs> So diversity and inclusion has always been a part of your life. I'm right. yeah. I'm an advocate. Right. For, <laughs> foreshadowing. <laughs> Look at me now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Okay. So that was pretty awesome. And Dr. Rory, I want to jump right into it because I got a little a lot of neuroplasticity questions. Okay. No pressure. Well, maybe. Okay. So my first question is how does neuroplasticity work and why is it important for recovery? Okay. So um, the first thing I want to do is take a big step back and just think about the fact that brains are uh, in large part designed to change, to, to alter how they work on the on the basis of experience. Okay. So, you know, we think uh, people tend to think of their brains as kind of static, but uh, you know, just this thing that's in their head. uh, But, but every experience you have is altering how your brain functions. Right. I mean, the, the the talk we're having right now is, you know, and, and the points we make, if if we learn something, if if you make a memory out of what we have uh, done here today, right. That's, that is a, a, a minor, alteration in in how your brain is organized right and so so your brain is always in the process of making plastic changes it's it's how you learn anything it's how you uh change in response to anything 
Okay. And so that those same principles, that same idea of plasticity is also the, the bedrock of recovery from injury. Right? When you have a brain injury of any type or, uh, you know, a, a stroke, a traumatic brain injury, if you're going to have a set of deficits, a set of problems that you then have more trouble, you know, things that you have more trouble negotiating. But if as time goes by, those any of those things get easier at all. And it's because your brain reorganized to mm. allow for that to happen, right? It must have. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. must have changed. And so neuroplasticity is the is that process. And a lot of it happens because uh, the the brain kind of adapts and changes in response to its own activity. Uh, you you may have heard this saying at some point if you've been around the neuroscience world that neurons that fire together wire together. There's this idea that if groups of you know if parts of the brain start to fire in, in different patterns, if they if they keep going in that way, it makes it more likely that they'll keep firing in those patterns in the future. So brain pa- brain activity patterns can shift, and and in response to things like injury, and those shifts can kind of get reinforced, get strengthened. So the brain starts to operate in new ways, right? In response to injury and as it's, as you're undergoing recovery that then over time help to compensate for whatever your injury uh, may have been. And so, you know, again, brains are super plastic. That's the, that's their fundamental quality. uh, And that is the, the, the core, right. Of recovery after injury and you know a lot of what we do in our lab is to try and nudge that along even further mm. go angie i saw your brow frow the um, you made the the doctor you made a comment like um the neurons that fire together stay together is that what you said uh it's it's, it's a little rhyme like neurons that fire together wire together so it means that you know if if uh you've got it's it's a actually something that comes from neuroscience where they've noticed that neurons that are connected to each other if they if they're firing near around the same time they tend to strengthen their connection to one another but you can think of that more broadly in terms of patterns of brain activity that that if you're you know when your brain is injured if it starts to reorganize how it how it does something it used to do with the part of the brain that was injured, right? Mm-hmm. It starts to reorganize its its activities. Well, if that becomes its new habit, right? Then then that becomes a kind of new, um, the the new normal, if you will, right? The new organization by which the brain accomplishes those tasks because those those brain areas have started to fire together. They've started to again sort of strengthen their connections and and as we say in, in science, wire together. All right. So if you injure a part, it goes, the new ones fire around where the damage was and that gets where the strengthening happens and then it gets reconnected. Well, uh, it, 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 it can, but that's not always what happens. Let's, let's take a, a kind of concrete example. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's take strokes that give rise to aphasia. 
for example. Okay, sort of familiar territory for us. So, um, so you know, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, you, I I hear you heard of it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, uh, you know, in that case, areas of the brain that uh, for pe- for persons who haven't had strokes, you know, for those individuals, areas of the brain that normally accomplish language, when the individuals had a stroke, those areas may be damaged. They big parts of that sort of network of areas may be destroyed. Right, because stroke can actually uh, just take out whole areas of brain. So if that happens, right, and the and the person starts with a certain level of aphasia, and but over time there's a change, they get there's a, some improvement. It it means that something additional must have happened. Right? right, and often what happens is that areas that are next door neighbors, if you will. To the areas that were damaged might pick up some slack. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, we've observed, often, in fact, we've observed that uh, areas that are on the other side of the brain than the side of the brain that uh, often is engaged in persons who don't have aphasia, um, which, by the way, is the left side. Often for individuals with aphasia, they're, they're also engaging their right side, right? So basically, uh, there's there's new patterns of activity that seem to arise in individuals who have uh have had damage to the normal circuit right now those those new patterns may not be able to accomplish the task quite as well as the old area had been able to but they're still critical for getting us to some level of recovery Mm-hmm. And so that, that's why, you know, uh, the kinds of studies we do, at least, uh, are geared at trying to figure out if we can push those areas to function even a little better in the service of doing what the the part that was damaged used to do. All right. So I have um, an analogy. So I used to have a Mustang. And then I had a stroke and now I have a I brown didn't. cavalier. Right. <laughs> and now right. I have a brown cavalier and I'm trying to. The brown cavalier is getting me where I have to go, but as I add more stuff and get a kit and maybe put this new engine in, it gets better and better over time. And that's the neural for the neuroplasticity, the part that's getting start. It's getting the more parts and things I put in it, the faster it can go. But it will never go as fast as my original Mustang. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Right, you're talking about. Um... Some parts of the of the brain that may not have originally been tasked with uh, with the job or may not have been the optimal system for the job, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, if you ever seen a Mustang and a Cavalier side by side, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, plasticity means that like maybe the, these areas that weren't originally optimal for the job can somehow be brought up to the point where they're they're contributing in a meaningful way right even though that's what it was never meant to go that fast but if that, we that's right drop that's right. nitro as long as yes as long as you don't hit the bus stop <laughs> that's amazing okay well let me ask you this dr roy um does neuroplasticity um stop working like, are there inherent limits to what 
can be done? Uh, yes, neuroplasticity stops working when you die. Okay. Yes, I'm so glad you said that. Not the whole, like, but that reality. Because so many times I think that as speech language pathologists and other practitioners, you know, they are so quick to say that the client plateaued or this insight that comes off like, that that's just it. Like neuroplasticity is done. Their therapy is done because they are as good as they're going to get. So I'm so glad you said that that happens when you die. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, there is this idea that is prevalent, right? You you know this, that, that there is some window. And it's certainly true. Right after an injury, th- this part's true. After an injury, there is a kind of steeper window of neuroplastic or you know steeper uh period of neuroplastic change sure right and people go from the the worst part of their symptoms to something different than that you know in in that acute subacute period but it's this idea that you then level off and it's flat and you're done right there's there's evidence that 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 can keep going if people keep working at it Right. So plasticity and behavioral improvements can can keep going. And so, you know, it's it's funny. We've sort of bought into this notion that neuroplasticity stops when I don't know, when the insurance coverage for speech language therapy. <laughs> OK, ends. OK, come through, come through with that statement. Say say, say that statement one more time. Right? <laughs> for the people right? in the back, I mean, for the people in the back. Yes. Right. We cover it for just a period of time. And then we're like, well, that must be the window over which it's effective. I mean, no, we shouldn't let insurance companies tell us when neuroplasticity ends. Right. But this is where I think I I lucked out because I availed myself to research and I went and I got so much better um, in my rate of speech, you know, and it, it, it made it such a huge difference. But this is why you have to let people know that there is things that you can do after you get out that office. But you have to take you have to take the responsibility. You have to know that it's available. And I'm of the thinking that people would be more responsible to do it if they knew it was available. Right. Yeah. You know, that's right. Because how do you let people know and also let people know it's safe? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, the black community has a little um, we ain't that trusting with the uh, with the uh, research folk. <laughs> we ain't got it hasn't always worked out in our favor. So, you know. Yeah, it, it often has not. But I think some of that, too, um, you know, Dr. Roy, you talk about a lot of the work that you do in your lab. Do you think the diversity in your lab, even if it is just you? Um, helps to ease some of that trust because when, you know, you're going in and you're about to start these studies and the individuals see you. Absolutely. I mean, um, first of all, if you think it's just me, you got to go to my website. (laughs) 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 Right. I mean, we, we have a really diverse group and, um, I, I think that, I mean, that first of all, let's take a page out of uh, the clinic and what we know about clinical environments, because there's very, 
uh, good evidence that when there is greater diversity in clinical environments, when people can actually see people who, you know, remind them of themselves, that 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 engenders greater trust more readily, right? It make, it puts people at ease. And so to have an environment like that, you know, that, that uh, people know that, well, they may not know it the first time before they arrive, but they know when they arrive, that they're not just entering a space that's going to be homogeneous and completely unlike them. Uh, I think that's that's really, really valuable. And it's, it's part of what makes it important that uh, the field of research in aphasia, the field of uh, research in brain injury, that it that it be more diverse, right? Because you, you can't actually fulfill uh, your, your health equity goals with respect to research, or maybe you can, but it would certainly be much harder mm-hmm. if you didn't have any representation in the team itself. Yeah. Excellent. Well, the other thing that I that I wanted, you know, you had mentioned insurance dollars and also speech language pathologists. And, you know, do you have any tips for practitioners working in neurorehabilitation? And when I say practitioners, especially because we're talking about aphasia, I'm specifically thinking speech language pathologists, but we know we have listeners of all rehabilitative disciplines. So just, you know, any tips that you have for practitioners working in neurorehabilitation? Yeah. So can I tell you my first thought about this question? Yeah. Which is, sure. okay, I'm, I'm a neurologist and I'm a researcher. And you're going to ask me to give tips to practitioners in neurorehabilitation, right? Like, I'm like, why are you going to ask me to mansplain something to people that I, I don't, I'm not actually that person. Like, I, so, okay. All right. Well, let, if you insist, let, if you insist, I'm, but I'm going to turn it on its head a little bit. So the first thing I'm going to say is um, to teach back, right? Uh, people often don't think this way, but to teach back to those other clinicians who are part of the chain in terms of you know where patients come from who uh, require neurorehabilitation. And I realized I did you know when one says teach, you might be thinking about teaching the, the patient. In this particular context, I'm talking about my colleagues. Mm-hmm. You know that the, mm-hmm. the the typical neurologist, you know, they might see the patient in the acute setting when they had the worst of their stroke. They might be you know, sort of taking measures. They might see them subacutely afterwards. Um, but a lot of the, the, a lot of these clinicians don't have a lot of insight into the long-term outcomes for their patients and the things that determine those outcomes and the the specifics of the road and what it takes to get them there, right? And and that's because they're they're siloed from the the practitioners who are really making it happen, right? And and that's a shame because I'm sure that we would make other choices. Or or advocate for other choices if we had a if if you know your typical neurologist had a or other clinician who's seeing mm-hmm. the acute patient had a had a clear sense of what it took to get people where they need to go the road in between and what practitioners need to get them there, right? So wow. sort of teach back to the rest of your your team, um, and then you know I'm, I I can't help but stump for research a little bit mm-hmm. um, because we are still 
in in every form of recovery, we're still looking for better and better interventions, right? And interventions then that can spur plasticity in the brain, which we've been talking about, get people closer to where they had been prior to their, uh, in terms of their performance, prior to their events. And um, research is an important way to, to get us there. So uh, if individuals can be familiar, the practitioners can be familiar with what's going on in their area, right? Uh, whether it's by looking at the websites for the institutions, the major institutions in the area or clinicaltrials.gov or maybe the National Aphasia Association website. I mean, however they or get arch, informed about what's... Art or Arch. The Aphasia goes without collaboration saying, hub. Hello. <laughs> or You arch. better plug it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what an excellent resource, let me tell you, in our area, in the Thank Philadelphia you. area. Um I think that's that's super important. And and the last piece I'll say about this is that it's is sort of an add-on to what I just said, right? The the representation in the clinical research population is highly skewed, right? It, it is not diverse. I mean, how how is it going to be the case that um that African Americans have twice the risk of developing a stroke, right? And Yet they can be so hard to find in a in a trial. Okay, where the most common focal deficit associated with stroke. Right, that that is wow. That is a disparity. And We're gonna try to recruit. Yeah, not informing your patients of these opportunities is a kind of inequity, right? Because it means that certain people who have better access to better information get access to to cutting edge interventions, and people who don't have access to that kind of information just don't. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's that that's my third piece of advice for practitioners. Love mm-hmm. it. Tell it tell that's good. That's no, listen, the thing is the um it's so important and those words um no wait those um communication between the practitioner, the researcher, and the client and the caregiver has got to be strengthened. Because there is help available. I'm proof of it. Mm-hmm. Over here making whole sentences and everything. Stop. It's too much. <laughs> yeah. Can I say one more thing about this? Of course. We, okay. So we, we've we talked about diversity in trials from the perspective of the person with aphasia, right? That, it, that there, you're talking about a gap in opportunity here that is important to try and fill. But you can look at it a different way too, which is the quality of the science. Okay, mm. and and here we get into something called uh, concepts of generalizability and applicability. And so, what I mean is, if if you run a trial, right, you run a study, and that study only has like a little little tiny segment of the population, right? It's it's super homogeneous, doesn't you know, there are lots of people who are not represented in that trial. There is no guarantee that when you take that new treatment and you give it to a population of people who come from all walks of life, that that treatment is going to work for everyone. Right? right. And so it's not it's not just unfair for people who don't have an opportunity to be in the trial. It it threatens the quality of the science that comes out of the trial for studies to not have diversity. 
Yeah. And so it's it's existential to the field. Mm. God, that's good. So what's the answer? So how do we do better? Uh, well, if, if there was a simple answer, we would have done it already. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Right. That's, that's fair. right. But um, but I, I think, you know, we we have to have a better strategies and and strategies that are more geared towards forming trusting partnerships with the communities that we want to engage and that we want to benefit from research, right? I mean, you're starting, we're starting from behind, right? We're starting from a a trust gap. And so you got to, you have to do more and you can't just, you can't just put up a flyer. You can't just post something on a website because, you know, that's, that's for, I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why that's just not going to be effective. And so, you know, we have been, uh, working increasingly, and uh, you know, obviously, your work is uh, instrumental in in trying to really engage people where they live, right? And yeah. um, to to first of all, educate the I mean, the public writ large, right, about these kinds of problems, right? I mean, again, I know all you have all sorts of listeners. You're famous, but I'll say, <laughs> I mean, but, you said it, not me. <laughs> I said. <laughs> manifesting <laughs> right. uh, yeah i yeah i know you're not going to cut that and, and, <laughs> but but uh you know uh for those of us who work in the aphasia world right i mean the most common focal cognitive deficit associated with one of the most common neurologic death diseases uh, of all and and yet you know you ask people up and down the street tell me a little bit about aphasia what are you what are you going to get right so we, yeah. we have to we have to educate. We have to engage, and we we really have to do it in a way that um, involves partnership, often partner and partnership with communities. Uh, yeah. So th- that's the overarching solution. Wow, I that's awesome. Yeah, that's one of the things I think um, as hardest about aphasia. Out of everything else that you lose, people don't even recognize um, what the word that you're saying to them. So it's, you know, you're coming in at such a high deficit. You're already so behind the eight ball. And then you can't explain to them what it is because you have a (laughs) face. So round and round we go. I would tell you, but I can't talk. But so and you don't know what I'm saying. It's yeah, it's definitely um, it's definitely pretty uh, difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, Angie, um, we're almost out of time. So I want you to get your questions in. But I did want to just follow up when you said the recruitment piece. I think the other thing that's really important with recruitment is with the flyers, you know, having like being intentional, like even from the flyer, even from the study design of the population that you want to include and get. I had a colleague one time and she wanted to recruit African-American stroke survivors, but on her recruitment flyer, the picture was neutral. And she said, you know, she was like, oh, well, I asked everyone and said it was okay. And my, you know, just question about it was like, 
people need to see themselves. And, you know, if you want to recruit a certain type of population, then be intentional about that, even from the flyer perspective. Right. Right. But you so, right. the problem is they're so used to not even seeing us that it doesn't even, you know, it took, it wasn't until the last 20 years where I could even get a Hallmark card with a person that looked like me on it. We had to go mm-hmm. with the animated version because we didn't, it was never us um, that was walking in the parking in love or growing. It was never a picture of older black people. It's never us. Matter of fact, I, was, I remember I told my father joked on one of the big birthday cards he gave. He's like, yeah, I don't know who these people in the front are. <laughs> like, I don't know who these, <laughs> but you know, I love you, but I don't know who these jerks are supposed to be. <laughs> But that's because it, we just weren't represented. And we already knew that. We didn't even expect to be represented in Hallmark. My point is, I can see why that person might have not have seen it because it's it's just not it's not something that they would have come across. Unless True. you're being intentional. True. Right. True. Yeah, right. they don't even know it's missing. Yeah. Because we're so non-existent in that and you know you can mm-hmm. go all day and not be bothered mm-hmm. <laughs> you can that's go right. all yeah. day yeah all that's right. right and and that intentionality i mean that that has to be present in your research operation yes right it, you you can't just say well we're gonna have a general strategy and um you know if, if we turn up the volume on our general strategy enough then uh you know uh, persons from underserved communities minoritized persons will will, will come cuz i don't know it's such a good strategy overall no you need a you need a specific strategy for for engagement in our our lab we just uh about middle of last year we got an award from um the Chan Zuckerberg initiative uh and it was a science diversity award. And so now a substantive portion of that award funds a, a specific engagement, a specific outreach engagement program for West Philadelphia or for Philadelphia's black community. Wow. Right? Nice. And, and we sort of try to conceptualize how we're going to engage members of that that community in, in specific ways rather than just our, our general advertising strategy for aphasia trials, which I, I can tell you bring if our general strategy does not bring in that population. So mm-hmm. right. you know, again, intentionality is key. Yeah. 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 And we have to um you have to advertise you gotta it's it's tough and make it in interesting and involving and what's the word I want? It's um engagement. Mm-hmm. You have That's to right. engage people where they are. Um, you just can't expect them to just show up on the eighth floor of your lab. Like it's not going to happen. That's right. And and I have one more thing to say about this, uh, which is uh, uh, what what we want and what I think researchers, all who are engaged in this effort should want is not to be extracted, right? In in other words, our goal is not to just parachute into a community. You're like, all right, mm-hmm. we're here now. Who can participate in our research, and then and then we're gone, right? right. Like, so, uh, we our our goal is to engage, to educate about aphasia, tell people about what resources are out there. Really, sort of 
help people understand and and give people give give communities something right we give first and mm-hmm. and then you know once if if there's trust if there's partnership then we ask whether or not people are interested in wanting to participate in the kind of work that we do because we're not here to practice research colonialism mm-hmm. right wow mm. yeah yeah so how can a survivor intentionally work on neuroplasticity to regain function? Uh, you got you got to work at it, right? It, it's um, it is a lot. Well, let's go back to what we talked about about plasticity for mm-hmm. you know for mm-hmm. top of the conversation. Okay, so uh, it it's the case that when the brain is in use, it is that use that causes the brain to reorganize. So that means that uh, it's it's about practice and use and practice and use and m- more than just those couple of days a week that mm-hmm. you're going to see the therapist, right? The ther- the therapist isn't the only time you practice that skill. The therapist is more like um, it's more like your personal trainer, right? Wow. And, but if you if you only worked out, if you only exercised on the days you saw your personal trainer, if that was your only exercise, it's not going to help. Right. And so it's going to take a, a lot of of work and trial and trial and error uh, on the part of the the individual. Mm. That is so good. Yeah. Yeah. What about anxiety? Uh, Angie, did you want to ask anything oh, about anxiety? Yeah, I did. Before we get um, out of here. With um, when I had my stroke, um, but bottom line is I want to know. What is uh, people with strokes? They have a, I want to know why they have a higher rate of anxiety. Um, Is it kind of the cognition part? Is it the embarrassment of it? Like, what is it that's causing this immense amount after a stroke? It's like my anxiety was just off the chain and I found that as I'm not alone in that. So I'm wondering, is there any information you can give me on that? Well, you know, I think that um, it would be, it would be hard for me to say it's definitely because this, that, the other thing, but I do have three, I have three answers for you. Okay. Okay. All right. So, so the first is that, the average person who has a significant stroke has had a traumatic event happen to them, mm-hmm. right? They they have had uh, a, and I'm talking about what happens at the time of stroke. I mean, these people are, you know, I mean, I I, I don't necessarily need to share your the, the stroke story, but you hear so many stories of how it occurs to people. And then what, everything that's going to happen next for the next 24 48 hours in the in the hospital right they're going to get the procedures and it's like super chaotic environment and they, they're confused and they don't always know what's what's happening and it's it's life-threatening right so a certain number of those people are not going to walk out it's it's a serious serious event so mm-hmm. to be traumatized by the event itself is is one feature mm. secondly it it completely it can it's a of course it's a range right but it can dramatically alter how you're engaging with every aspect of your life. And so now you go from living one way to not by choice, 
living in a completely different way with new challenges everywhere you turn, right? And right. including social challenges, interpersonal challenges. I mean, the kinds of things that you would expect would provoke anxiety in people, mm-hmm. right? So you start you start with a traumatic event. Then you have an anxiety-provoking alteration in your day-to-day lived experience after that. And, and then on top of that, well, I mean, let's talk about what organ just got injured. It is the organ that also helps you regulate and control your emotional states. Mm-hmm. Water on the motherboard. Right. So now you've got this combination of things, like something traumatic happened to you, your life is altered in these profound and anxiety-provoking ways, and the the thing that you would use, the tool you would use to sort of control your ang- your own anxiety has been injured. Right. right. So it's it's no surprise that people facing that trifecta of challenges should be anxious. Yeah, it was um I'm going to go ahead and go with unbearable. <laughs> it yeah. was and very yeah. shocking. Like it was I was so sad all the time or or just it was just bad and I couldn't it was like I told a friend of mine, it's hard to be mind over matter when it's your mind that's what's the matter. You can go ahead exactly. and write that down. I am going to write that. Oh, yeah, I have you a should. recording. Yeah, yeah, you should. Yeah, you will. Go ahead and cite me on that. It's all good. I will. <laughs> I think that that's why it's also important for um, survivors to feel comfortable to talk to their neurologists and their practitioners about the anxiety and some of the psychological changes that are happening. So if medication is available, that could at least help regulate that. That can be a conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that that's something that is very much under discussed, not, Mm -hmm. not uh, broached enough in the clinician's office when people are talking about uh, how they are, surviving and how what they are doing to try to thrive uh in the follow-up from their whatever their brain injury may be mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and it's it's definitely um as the person here with the stroke it's you just don't know what you don't know and i was always taken aback at the things that i couldn't do that i didn't know i couldn't do until i went to try i'm always talk about the kind of my shoe i didn't know that was up for grabs and then mm-hmm. now I now I'm sitting around with my feelings hurt with two strings in my hand. I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> but right. you know, luckily for me, I'm married to a great guy. He's to this day, he still ties my shoe for me. Oh, he's a sweetie. <laughs> Shout out to Charles. <laughs> um, okay, so we are over time. This has been absolutely amazing. But Dr. Roy, I have to ask you this one last question. <laughs> which is about any new treatments you're excited about or research areas. Oh, now, you know, I'm going to talk about my stuff as well. You should shameless. Plug. Okay. Okay. Shameless so plug. shameless, shameless plug. All right. So um, I think that an important piece of uh, what is to come in neuro rehabilitation and uh, rehabilitation in general involves uh, directly targeting the brain, all right? So I'm not just going to plug my work. I'm going to plug all of neuromodulation where the treatment isn't just a behavioral manipulation, a certain way of doing things, uh, but it's augmenting 
those practices with uh, with interventions that directly talk to the circuits of the brain that have reorganized to try and help people accomplish those tasks, maybe nudge them a little further into neuroplastic states that'll help them recover their abilities, right? So in our work, we do that with magnets and electrodes. There are other groups that use other forms of neuromodulation. But I think in the future, as we understand more about how the circuits work, and we are understanding more and more about how these circuits work every year. So as we understand the circuitry of the brain better, we're going to be able to make targeted manipulations that are safe and also effective in trying to help people recover uh, their abilities by helping the brain reorganize itself, right? And so that, I think, uh, you know, that's that's what gets me up in the morning with respect to the work in our lab. And I, I you know, it's been uh, more than a decade and I still think it's the, the wave of the future. That is awesome. Dr. Roy Hamilton, shout out to you. Bro. Shout out to you. Shout Thank out you. to you, man. Dude, oh, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, taking the time, rocking out with us, rolling with the brain friends. Brain friends. Brain friends. You got to jump in with a brain friend. Come on. Friend. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Bye. All right. It was a joy. Thank you. Peace, y'all.